I made the case this morning that the theme is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, I did not mention this um, this morning, but that once for all delivered to the saints is extremely important because there is much today that's claimed to be uh, authoritative or new discovery, new teaching, something that the church for 2,000 years has missed. And I just throw the flag anytime I hear, you know, the church um, has gotten this wrong. But now we know um, better than our forefathers and the great cloud of witnesses that went before us um, for 2,000 years of church history. Now we've discovered something. Anytime I hear that, the, the red flags and the warning is, is going off in my mind. This is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if, and if you're hearing something new um, from the church in, in radical kind of ways, then be warned. But where, J, where Jude continues, he says in verse 5, I want to remind you. So he's appealing to something that they knew. And, and these remembrances, almost like the, the statements, the expressions that we received growing up, similar to what you all shared, there's, there's truism there. And so the remembrance, hey, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Hoot with the owls, you'll crow with the chickens. Uh, it, those things, though, you know, kind of colloquial expressions, you know, in our era and culture, um, they communicate almost a warning, right? If you stay up late, you're going to be exhausted the next morning. So it's a, it's a remembering that serves as a warning. And that's exactly what Jude is doing here. He's taking them back to Old Testament text. Now, Jared read it for us, but he says, I want to remind you, so go back in your minds, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, so he's referring now to the Exodus, and historically, uh, Jude's audience would have known it. I don't want to assume for us tonight, but the Exodus was a time where Israel spent 450 years, four generations enslaved in Egypt, and then God delivered them. He freed them. He did that through His servant Moses and led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And so he says, Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And what's really interesting there, as an aside, is that Jude said Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So where was Jesus in your Bible? He wasn't just in the New Testament. Now, Christ incarnate? Yes, New Testament. But even Jesus said to his disciples and to the Pharisees in the New Testament, you've read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about me. Jude understood that. And he says that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. So that's a reference to the Exodus. But afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. And then he, he gives, there's three examples here. Jude loves threes throughout this letter. And the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority but they left their proper dwelling. He kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what's this a reference to? Most theologians would say that in Jude verse 6 is a reference to Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. And in Genesis chapter 6, and this is the precursor to the flood. So again, not to assume, the flood was where God looked upon the thoughts and the intentions of man which were only evil continuously. And he brings judgment in the form of a flood to cover the earth. 
and he saved out of an unrighteous people, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives eight. And so this is a reference then to angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. In Jude 6, 1 through 4, um, there's this reference to the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men and creating a race called the Nephilim. Now we could spend the rest of the night talking about that instance, but those sons of God, the reference there is not to human flesh like us, it's to a divine being, a, a, a creature. Uh, I should say a heavenly creature created by God who left their proper dwelling place and came and intermarried, interrelated with the daughters of men, our physical, fleshly beings like us. And there was a race that spawned from that union between those two. And it was improper. This is the reference for Jude. And then in verse 7, this is the third. So there's three examples. And he, he started off in verse 5 saying, remember. Remember Israel. Remember the angels. And then in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So now in Israel's history, we have where Abraham and Lot separated and Lot went one direction, Abraham went another direction, and Lot took up residence in and around Sodom and Gomorrah. And God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because, exactly as Jude says, because of their sexual deviance, their sexual immorality. And, and it was perverse, it was heinous, um, to the point where God sent two angels to get Lot out, and the men of the city came and sought to rape the two men, angels in the form of men, and, and to remove them by force from Lot's house. And so God again interceded and He blinded all the men of the city so that they could not remove these two strangers who had showed up to warn Lot and to get him out of the city. And so that's, that's a little bit of that backstory. So Judas is telling the church now, you know, a long period of time after these events happened, you need to remember those events. Remember for the sake of warning. Because if you forget about what happened, you're prone to repeat. Now, not in the literal sense in that the warning is that you're going to be enslaved in a foreign country or that you're an angelic being who's going to leave a heavenly dwelling or that you're going to find yourself in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not the point. But these three historical references, they... they conjure up in the minds of Jude's hearers this one idea. And all three are the same. It, it has to do with submission to authority. So Israel, after God had brought them out of captivity, complained and grumbled, mistrusted and rebelled, and they did not submit to God's authority in the wilderness. They didn't submit to His his authority in his stead as in, in Moses, they wanted to they wanted to usurp Moses' position as God's servant and overthrow him. 
they defied God when Moses was up on the mountain when God was delivering the, the covenant to the people. And that was, that was their constant history. Angels who were created beings, angelic created beings, leaving their proper dwelling place to do what was abhorrent, what ought not to be done. And so he says explicitly, they did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. And now they're in eternal chains, kept for the day of judgment, the great day. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And these serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, three warning blasts for us tonight. Three things that we ought to remember that serve as future warning for us, for our own hearts, for our own minds, for our own obedience, for our own submission to authority. Do you remember what happened on May 22nd, 2011? It's kind of an obscure date. But May 22nd, 2011. May 22nd, 2011, a siren that afternoon after people had gotten out of church and gone home to watch football, early that afternoon, a siren blast filled the sky and all the streets around Joplin, Missouri. And the people in Joplin were not unused to hearing siren blasts warning them of an impending tornado or the possibility of it. And so it could be that you and I might be able to sympathize with the residents of Joplin when you're so used to or accustomed to hearing something, you then turn your TV on, you turn your weather radio on, you think to yourself, okay, I wonder where that's at. And you think you have time. You give yourself time. Maybe you open up the shutters and start looking out the window. Maybe you wait until the play's over with before you switch the TV over to the Weather Channel. But in this case, an EF5 tornado had touched down. Uh, the ranking of tornadoes, EF1 through EF5, EF5 basically has wind that's so strong that it's immeasurable. What scientists know is that it's over 200 miles an hour, but to date they've not been able to invent anything that can withstand the sheer magnitude and the speed of the wind. They just know it's over 200 miles an hour. So anything over 200 miles an hour is an EF5, but they don't really know how strong the winds are because they can't measure it. And this EF5 tornado was one mile wide. One mile so if you think about how long it takes the average person to walk a mile, it's about 15 to 18 minutes for somebody walking at an average pace to walk a mile. You start on one end of that tornado and begin to walk to the other, you're 15 to 20 minutes. An EF5, 200 plus mile an hour winds, one mile wide. And when it touched down, it traveled for 22 miles. It killed 158 people. And 1,150 others were injured and hospitalized as a result of it. It destroyed just at 7,000 homes, damaging another 1,000. And did hundreds of millions of dollars of damage in and around Joplin. And the warning siren went off. 
sociologists that have studied that tornado, which is one of the most deadly, destructive, and expensive in American history, talked about of those 158 people killed, how many, and it's, it's somewhat speculative, but how many ignored the warning signs? And how many would have been saved or uninjured had they listened when the siren blasted and they sought shelter? It's a different reality. Interestingly enough, uh, Sarah and I, before moving from West Virginia to Virginia, we were interviewed by a church just outside of Joplin. And so we spent three days there and looked at homes, thinking that maybe this is where God was calling us and, and looking at homes. And one of the big selling points was tornado shelters. Either traditional kind, outside, underground, or kind of a steel box kind that all new construction had because of this tornado. So the warning comes. And, and Jude says, I want to remind you, although you once knew it, that Jesus saved the people, but afterward, He destroyed those who didn't believe. And there were angels who didn't stay, stay in their proper dwelling place. And as a result of that, He is keeping them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until their judgment on the great day, which is a reference to His return. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desire, they serve as an example, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three remembrances, three warnings for us tonight. The first with the example of Israel, and this piggybacks on kind of the emphasis that I placed in the message this morning. The first remember and be warned is that not everyone who is in is in. That's the first. Not everybody who's in is in. I don't want to belabor this because I talked about the parable of the soil, the four soils this morning from Mark chapter 4. I want to take you to Matthew 13 tonight. If you'll turn to Matthew 13, and I want to show you another parable from Jesus that I think illustrates this remember and be warned well. And it's, it's from Matthew 13. Now, in Matthew 13, um, Jesus begins that chapter with the same parable that Mark includes in, in Mark chapter 4 that I made reference of this morning. But the one I want to take your attention to is in Matthew 13, verse 24. And I'm going to read that and you can follow along with me. But in, in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus says this. He, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his enemy were sleeping, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This illustrates well the warning, the remember and be warned that not everybody who's in is in. So Israel went out of Egypt and yet afterward God destroyed those who did not believe. Paul makes mention of this, and I'm not going to go and read it. You can go and look at it in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13 explicitly. Paul writes about this occurrence as well. Imagine if you were alive, if you could get in a time machine and go back to this point in time, roughly the 1500s BC, roughly, and you were standing on the banks of the Red Sea, watching this great throng of people coming at you and then seeing very close behind chariots and horses and troops and an army trying to run them down and kill them. And then you think to yourself as you're standing on the banks of the the Red Sea, how in the world is this going to turn out? And then all of a sudden the seas part and you see that great crowd pass through unscathed and not even wet. And they get through on the other side and then right behind that army's coming. And just as they get out into the middle of this thing, those waters recede, they come back and they they drown this brigade, this army, and these people are free. And you're standing there on the bank watching it happen. And you think to yourself, wow, to be in their shoes, if I saw God do that, I would never disbelieve in my life. It would be smooth sailing from this point on because there's nothing he could say to me or nothing that he would tell me that I wouldn't heartily and readily say, Amen, let's do it. Because that's incredible. That's amazing. That's miraculous. It's unheard of. And yet, a very short period of time, if you were to travel along with them in history, you would hear, you would hear mistrust and doubt and faithlessness and rebellion coming out of their mouths because it was in their heart. And and Jude says, remember, though you once knew it, that even though these people were delivered, after those who did not believe were destroyed, not everybody who's in is in. And Jesus says the church is like that. The church visible. Because what happens is the seed is scattered and weeds are planted among it. And then it all grows up together. But there will come a day of harvest where there will be a division between wheat and weeds. And and on that day, it will be seen, it will be known who was really in. Because not everybody who's in is in. And, and the practical side of this for us is that for each one of us in, in here is one, I, I think, a realistic expectation of the church. There are many people, myself included at various points of time, that have got so wounded and so injured and so hurt by their experiences in the church. And I, and I think in part, though much can be said about that, is that even Jesus himself said that He had come for the sick, not the healthy, because the sick are the ones that need a doctor. And so if you have a gathering of people where grace is being proclaimed, 
it ought to draw like moths to the flame people in need of grace. Not healthy and self-righteous people, but unhealthy and broken people who are looking for righteousness. They're looking for grace. They're looking for love. They're looking for forgiveness and worth and acceptance and joy that they've never experienced and never had. And this, this community of people ought to be attractive to broken and hurting and needy people. Because that's us. We're, we just get very good over time of wearing a veneer. But in the context of the wheat and the weeds growing up together, we ought to expect being sinned against and, and wounded and hurt by the people around us. That, so that when, not if, but when that happens, we don't throw our hands up and say, I'm done with the church. But we recognize that this thing is a mixed bag with lots of different people who are in, in lots of different places. And it may be that they're just beginning a spiritual journey and, and God is going to continue to grow them up. Or it, it may be that they're a weed amongst the wheat. And what they need, along with the rest of us, is a proclamation of the Gospel. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to believe. You need to confess your sin before the Lord and turn from it. Because there's grace and forgiveness available to you. But a, a realistic picture of the church for all of us I think helps us cope when, not if, we're sinned against. And, and I say that to people often in my own church, in my own preaching, is if, if you think that this thing is really glamorous and pretty and perfect, stick around. You haven't been here long enough. You haven't hung out with me long enough. Jude warns them, be reminded that not everybody who's in is in. Now with the angels, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. The angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling place, He has kept in chains. Now again, the theme here is one of rebellion. The same with Israel. It takes a different shape and a different form. But the reminder to be warned, the siren blast, is that pride always comes before destruction. Not everybody who's in is in, and pride always comes before destruction. Proverbs 16.18 says that. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And it's 100% of the time. It's true for each one of us. The more you assert yourself, the more you put yourself in a position where all the world revolves around you, where your desires, your wants, your dreams, that that is the most important thing in your life. And, and you have set yourself up as the actor with everyone else as supporting actors and actresses. You are, are setting yourself up for destruction. You just haven't gotten there yet. But if you continue along that path unrepentant, it will happen 100% of the time. Always. C.S. Lewis says this, and I, I think it's really fitting in Mere Christianity uh, in, a, in chapter 8 concerning pride. He dedicates an entire chapter to the issue of pride. And he says, I'm quoting now Lewis, there's a terrible question before us. 
How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid that it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. He's saying if you can say that you believe in God and yet continue on in your pride, then you're believing in something else. And he says it's an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God. But they're really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks of them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a pennyworth of imaginary humility to him and they get out of it a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow man. I suppose it was of those people that Christ himself was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name only to be told at the end of the world that he never knew them. That's a a reference to Matthew 7 where Jesus says, many will say of me, Lord, Lord. And then he goes on and says, And they'll say, did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform healings and many miracles? And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. How do we know that is or is not us? Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good. Above all, that we are better than everyone else. I think we might be sure that we're being acted upon, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as small. It's better to forget about yourself altogether, end quote. And and where this remember and be warned is that pride goes before destruction. And again, as we relate and interrelate to Christians and to the church, it's staggering to me to think about how many people conceive of their spiritual growth being moving further and further away from sin. I want you to think about that for a second because so many people conceive of, okay, I was saved and now as I'm sanctified, as, as God continues to transform me, what that means is that increasingly I'm going to need less and less of Him. Because I'm getting better and better and better. Christian transformation, Christian sanctification is not that. What Christian sanctification is, is growing to realize more and more and more how pervasive sin inside of you is. And simultaneous to that, because if you only grow to realize more and more and more how, how bad you are, I mean that, that is a weight and a mantle on your shoulders that is so depressing and despairing that you might as well crawl in a hole and, and not come out. So simultaneous to realizing how bad I am is all that God did in Jesus Christ to save me. 
It's increasingly seeing yourself this way and seeing the cross of Jesus Christ this way and then being humbled. Pride goes before destruction. Being humbled in the very presence of God because of all that He did for you. You see yourself truly. And then you see simultaneous to that what He's done for you. And, and being humbled beyond words in His very presence. It's, it's bowing before Him. Pride goes before destruction. And, and a church and a Christian that, that holds themselves pridefully because of their religion, because of their Christianity, they, they have not yet tasted and seen the grace and the goodness of God. The way that Paul said it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 is that it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst. That, that's it. That's the two things held together. Both hands. I'm the worst of sinners. And Christ died for sinners. So he, he, he died for me because I'm the worst. And th those two things have to go together for both humility in the presence of God and gratitude before Him. Pride always goes before destruction. The angels fell because of pride. And then the last, the last remember and be warned here in verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example. So the three warning blasts, remember and be warned, is that not everybody who's in is in. Pride goes before destruction always, 100% of the time. And the third one is that sexual immorality is a deadly drug. Remember and be warned. Sexual sin is a deadly Addictive, dangerous drug. And, and before you let yourself off the hook, I, I would contend and, and submit to you that the culture wars that we're facing in our society are strategic. There is a reason that what we see playing out before our eyes is what it is. And, I, and I'm talking specific about the, the sexual revolution that's unfolding. I, I don't consider myself that old, but in a very short period of time in my lifetime, in particular even in the last decade, I've seen things happening that I would have thought would have never happened in my lifetime or in our society. And there's a reason. It is a specific strategic design to strike at the image of God in the hearts of man. When you go back to Genesis 1 and back to Genesis 2 and you read about God creating Adam and Eve in His image, it's man and woman who are together in the image of God. And why is that significant? Well, it's significant because God is three in one. We, we alone, the Christian faith is alone Trinitarian. And it must be for our salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit who were eternally in a relationship with one another of, of love and mutual sacrifice and, and self-giving. And out of an overflow of who they are, 
they created, male and female. And so in that union of male and female, and we, we read about this, uh, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife and they will be one. It's a Hebrew word. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when God gives this ultimate self-disclosure to Israel. And, and He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father and Son and Spirit. Three persons, the one God, man and woman, coming together as one. And they are the image bearers. Male and female together as the image of God. And so if you want to cut as deeply and as harshly as you can across the image of God, where do you do it? You do it with human sexuality. If, if you want to strike as deeply as you can as an affront to the image of God, you do it where male and female are concerned. There, there's a reason that this is playing out before us. The way that it is. And so Jude says, remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. I would, I would say that the strongest argument for that unnatural desire is a direct reference to the homosexual practices of the men of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Now when I say that sexual sin is a dangerous drug, we don't think of it that way. Um, and I know that you have a, a pastor who um, counsels and, and, and works with many individuals dealing with addictions of, of this sort. We don't think of it, and I think that as, as people in the current of our culture, we don't think a whole lot about turning and going upstream against a current. Because we're kind of in the flow. But if you ever stop and turn and try to go upstream, you feel the force. We, we don't think much at all anymore about our sons and daughters saving themselves for marriage. I don't think we think about that. I, I think we, we only assume that this is, this is what everybody does. This is what our kids are going to do. And so we're, we're not necessarily even, we're not, teaching them too, we're just not teaching them against. It's just kind of the way things are. We don't think twice about looking at images on our phones or on our TVs or the shows that we binge watch. We don't think a lot about the, the sexuality and the message that's proclaimed and preached to us from the things that we watch. We, we don't often think about it. Right now, currently, males ages 18 to 34, if you line 10 of them up, inside, outside the church, across the board, if you line up males 18 to 34, you line up 100 of them. Statistically, 80 of them actively and regularly look at pornographic images on their handheld device. Remember, and be warned. Sexual 
sin in each one of us is a drug and it is highly addictive and it is strategically designed by Satan to play upon our appetites, our lust, our flesh, no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember and be warned. And, and so we would not walk down the street and, and see a syringe, generally speaking, and think to ourselves, I'm going to stick that in my arm and get a high. But the, the dopamine release from images that come at us in every way, shape, and form from every direction, we look and we look again and we look again, unthinking about what's happening in the trajectory of our thought life and our purity. And so remember and be warned. Remember and be warned. The way that I I want to conclude this evening, um, I was asking Sarah can you think of a time recently that we warned our children? See, there's lots of motivation for holiness that the Scriptures use. I think that the primary motivation for you to turn from sin and to God is grace. It's always grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, teaching us to say, to, to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the way we're taught to say no is to look upon the salvation of Christ and to see all that He did for us. And then our desires are that why why would we not want to love Him and please Him for all that He's done for us? That's the primary motivation. is gratitude. Humble, thankful gratitude. But there are other motivations that the Scriptures use replete. Repeatedly. And one of them is warning. Keep in mind, Jude is writing to the church and he's saying, remember. He's writing to, to people who believed in Jesus and he's saying, remember. Let these remembrances serve as a warning to you moving forward. So I asked Sarah, I said, can you think of a time that we recently warned our kids or that we warned our kids? And I was thinking like a year, two years ago. She's like, yes. Two months ago. Our, our son, our six-year-old, so we've got four children, 13, 11, 9, and 6, three girls and a boy, and the boy's the six years old. He had taken a couch cushion off of a couch that we had upstairs, and he was trying to surf it down our steps. All right? So he has this thing, and he's trying to literally ride it down a flight of steps from the upstairs to the downstairs. He had done it successfully a couple times, and Sarah warned him, you are going to hurt yourself. Stop. 30 minutes after she issued the warning, he gets on the couch cushion, heads down the stairs, halfway down the cushion cushion catches, and he goes head over heels, comes up with a broken arm. He got his cast off, I guess about three weeks ago. Broken arm, and we knew it. <laughs> you know, he came up doing the, the chicken leg thing. <laughs> Something's wrong. Yes, we warned you. yes something is wrong we warned you and because God loves us because he is a loving father who loves his children he does the same thing to us 
He gives us warnings. If, if you're riding the coattails of maybe a family legacy or church membership or even a baptism, like I was baptized when? Remember Israel who came out of Egypt and then some were destroyed because they did not believe. Not everybody who's in Jen. Remember the angels who were in the very presence of God as created beings who that wasn't good enough for them. And they left their dwelling place to do what ought not to be done. And they're awaiting a judgment in eternal change right now. And remember, remember Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual immorality. And that sexual sin and perversion and immorality in every way, shape, and form is a deadly drug. And it can't be played with. Remember and be warned. And so what, what I want us to do tonight, and I have no clue where you are right now in your relationship with God, in your thinking, in your feeling, I, I don't presume to know. God does, and, and you do. What I, I want to call us to, in line with what we talked about this morning and, and now continuing, is to repent. I want to call us to repent. And just so you know, repentance is not a one and done kind of thing. Like I repented 10 years ago. Repentance is, is a daily, always and forever life of a Christian. It could be that you've never repented, turned from your sin in, in active laying down of your life before Jesus. And this tonight might be a first time for you. It, it could be that tonight there is a heeding of, of a warning in your life and maybe you just feel like you've gotten closer than you should. And, and this has served as a shot across the bow to say, be warned. And that because God loves you and you want to, to confess to Him tonight and repent of sin or even the toying around with the thought of sin. Repentance is daily for all of us. Uh, repentance is made up of three things, three C's. Confession, contrition, and consecration. Confession, 1 John 1, nine. If you confess your sins before Him, He's faithful and just to forgive you. To just tell Him. He knows He wants to hear it from you because there is great honoring Him for who He is. To simply confess your sin, to confess. Contrition, that's Second Corinthians Chapter 7, verse 10. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It is, it is a godly sorrow. I am sorry. Here's what I did, and I'm sorry for it. And consecration. God, by Your grace and power and strength, I want to turn from this. I don't want to turn back to it. I want to turn from this to live for You. I don't know what you need to repent of tonight, I want to invite you to repent. So I, I'm going to ask Todd to come up and Jared, if you would, to come and play. And I want us to treat the front of the, the sanctuary as an, as an altar tonight to lay down our sins before Him and to repent. And so I, I want to invite you to, to come and kneel of just taking a posture. There's nothing magical or hyper-spiritual about it. 
but it is a bowing before the Lord. Physically representative of what's going on on the inside spiritually. And so it might be here at the, the steps. It could be these front two pews of turning and, and bowing and then praying to Him and confessing your sin and asking Him to forgive you. Whatever it is. So I want to invite you. The, the altar's open tonight.